everybody, Alice here with another episode of Poetry Says for you. It is bucketing down out there, I don't know if you can hear that rain on the roof. Melbourne has got the note that picnics are allowed. She's not into it, she's really not into it. It's It's been rainy and cold and windy and people have been picnicking really hard in every sense of the word. I saw a bunch of people in my local park yesterday who had a full trestle table and beautiful glasses of white wine. And and it was just, it was brutally windy and cold and they were just determined to have a really good time. And um, I was very happy for them. But yeah, it's a rainy Monday afternoon and I am sharing with you today an episode that I got to record back in July with Maxine Beniba-Clark. This was the next interview that I recorded in my series for Red Room's Poetry Month, which took place in August. And it was just a joy to talk with Maxine, uh, another poet who I probably wouldn't have had the wherewithal to approach for Poetry Says, um, but I'm so glad that I got the chance to speak with her. She's really well-known, widely published writer of everything from poetry to nonfiction, memoir, picture books, Uh, And her latest collection, which is called How Decent Folk Behave, is just out very, very recently from her publisher, which is Hatchet. She's also the author of the picture books When We Say Black Lives Matter, Fashionista, among others. Her first poetry collection was Carrying the World, and she's also the author of the memoir The Hate Race, So I went into this conversation with some pretty serious and earnest questions, I have to say. I I wanted to ask Maxine about what it is to be a writer of colour in Australia at the moment. I wanted to ask her about power and power structures and things like that. And I pretty quickly realised as we started talking that maybe that wasn't the conversation that we needed to have in that moment. Um, We ended up talking about some of those things but also a whole range of other stuff including what writing actually looks like in Maxine's life given that she is a busy parent and public figure to a certain degree. We discussed the question which is one that I put to a few poets in this series of whether we need a poet laureate here in Australia. Uh, I don't know if that term makes you shudder or um makes you nod in furious agreement but yeah it's something that I put to a few of the people I interviewed for this series um, and got a range of answers back Um, as I have done more than once on this podcast I completely misquote William Carlos Williams in talking about poetry and the news Williams of course said it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Not whatever the hell I said. Uh, that, that's not the quote. Just ignore that, please. One of the primary topics that I get into with Maxine here is why humour matters in poetry. So Maxine 
uh, is a prolific Twitter user, and on Twitter she is currently listed as Vaccine Beniva Clark. She's she's really, really, really funny on Twitter and in person, well, at least over Zoom. I'm sure that she's also hilarious in person, and I really wish we could sit down and have a drink at some point soon. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to get her her takes on why humour matters in poetry. And as I sort of mentioned in the interview, this question of whether we should be less serious as poets uh, or whether we could potentially allow ourselves to have a bit more fun is something that I've been turning over in my mind a lot lately. I think when I first started out, I absolutely thought that poetry was was exclusively a serious, earnest enterprise. Everything I read reinforced that view. Um, I'd never read a poem that made me laugh. I didn't know that was even allowed. Everything that I came across was just very, very serious. I think there are a lot of approaches to this. I think that some poets would probably argue, probably pretty convincingly, that um, it's important to use poetry to convey a serious message. Um, maybe not all the time, but maybe that's its primary purpose. And then I, I know that there are others who would not argue that, who would say poetry is there for, for joy and humour is something that we should prize and treasure in poetry. I think about this a lot in terms of what it is to go to a poetry reading, and Maxine and I talk quite a bit about this in this episode. I've been to many a poetry reading here in Australia and elsewhere, where the aim has seemed to be to almost bludgeon the audience with the heaviness of the content, by which I mean a good poem is a serious poem. And that means it's a poem that talks about something serious in a serious way, whether you're talking about um, terrorism or climate change or death or grief um, or lost love, some kind of political scandal. All these these big, serious topics are to be treated in a, a big, serious way. And then I've been to other readings where the aim is to get a laugh. If you get a laugh from the audience, you win the poetry reading because it's a competition, obviously. (laughs) Um, And in these scenarios, I think a good poem is a poem that talks about serious things or not so serious things in a way that makes its audience laugh. And I've been to readings where the register shifts between these two things because it's an open mic and people are trying to do different things with their poems and there's no cohesive tone and that's also really interesting when it flips back and forth. So Maxine talks a bit about what it is to go to a poetry reading here and what it is to learn how to keep the audience's attention. She talks about thinking about who the work is for when she's writing and I think that goes to that theme of seriousness as well. It's probably pretty obvious that like I fall pretty uh, squarely into the 
poetry should be joyful and if you get a laugh that's a great thing camp um but what maxine talks about here is you know whatever you're going to do make it interesting hold your audience's attention and she talks about learning that lesson when she was going to poetry open mics and bombing which as i mentioned is an experience that i also share and look of course some things just aren't funny and not all poems have to be funny but i really think some things also don't need to be taken so seriously and i think poetry could probably benefit from shedding a little bit of the over earnest and serious uh, reputation that it has i think i think all these things could be true i think we can have funny poems and serious and earnest poems And I think that Maxine does both beautifully. And I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with her. So Carrying the World came out in 2016. And you have a new collection coming out very soon from Hatchet, How Decent Folk Behave. And I'm wondering whether there have been differences bringing the second collection together. Has it felt different? Have there been practical differences given that you've been working under the constraints of a pandemic? What's the process been like bringing it together? Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about that recently, the difference in content and the difference in the way I write between the two books, because there has been such a long period of time between the two of them. Um, And so How Decent Folk Behave was kind of written over the last two years. And a lot of the poems are very much immediate reactions to things that are happening in the world. Um, whereas I feel like Carrying the World is more of a traditional anthology in terms of there being poems about lots and lots of different things um, in this quite big you know, anthology of my work. Whereas How Decent Folk Behave, you know, there are poems about climate change, there are poems about the pandemic, there are poems about the Black Lives Matter movement. It really feels like a chronicling of the last two years of the world. And perhaps, you know, except for one suite of poems, perhaps less introspective and more kind of, you know, almost anthems, you know, for people to kind of ruminate on what's been happening. What does that look like practically for you? What does your, because I know that you're balancing, you know, you're, you're a parent, you're uh, something of public figure, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of things. What does the actual process of writing a poem look like in your life? I feel like poetry, along with everything I do, just fits in wherever it fits in. So, you know, during the pandemic, that's, you know, writing at the kitchen table while the kids are doing schoolwork or staying up late after they've gone to bed. Or it isn't really until, uh, you know, maybe the last few months that I've started to claw back a little bit of the space that I had pre-pandemic to kind of go okay I've got a six-hour window while the kids are actually at school where I can get in that zone and write a couple of things Um, and it's always been like that for me it's always been you know starting poems on the back of shopper dockets or you know writing during a swimming lesson or and I feel like 
that probably also impacts on the style of the poetry. Um, you know, my poetry tends to be quite uh, stark and concentrated and straight to the point. And I think that has a lot to do with the circumstances under which I write. And does that mean when you go back to edit a poem, does it tend to stay pretty much as it was when you first wrote it? Or do you, how do you manage that process? There are definitely tweaks. Like I definitely have, you know, from the point of first putting down a poem on paper, I'd say the minimum of drafts that would go through would be four or five, and that would be absolute minimum. And, yeah, sometimes it is, oh, wow, I just didn't have time to actually come up with a particular image in this particular spot or, you know, this just isn't quite working, there's not enough on the page. And so, yeah, in the editing process, I think a lot of the detail does get added because I'm so busy trying to, oh, I've got half an hour to get this down, let me just map it out come back to it later. Um, but I did spend 2019 as a, what they called a poet laureate for the Saturday paper. And so the job for that was writing poetry on a weekly basis, often with subjects that things that had happened in the news or in the world that I wanted to write about. And sometimes it was like, okay, you need to write a poem about the Banking Royal Commission or you know, something completely out of my orbit. And so I think that also changed my practice a lot, that thing of going, okay, here's a particular issue. Where do I sit with thinking about my opinion about that and also thinking about a particular readership? You know, is everyone who reads this poem going to get something out of it, even if it's not necessarily what I would get out of it? Um, and so, yeah, I think that changed the immediacy of my work as well because um, sometimes it would be 48 hours um, some, you know, the poem's a weekly paper, so sometimes it would be, you know, Tuesday morning, the paper prints on Thursday, um, and we need a poem about this thing because we haven't been able to cover it. And so, yeah, that was a very interesting exercise in can I, <laughs> how concentrated can I actually make this process? I love that idea of poetry standing in for the news, you know, there's that um, William Carlos Williams' poetry does not contain the news, but in this case it really does. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned Poet Laureate in there, and that reminds me of something else I wanted to ask you. I've, I interviewed the Red Room team about Poetry Month to kick off this series, and they talked about the fact that we've never had a Poet Laureate in Australia. And that reminded me of a, a documentary I watched years ago about Kim Beasley talking to Les Murray, and Kim mm. Beasley was sitting there going, I'm going to make you the poet, first Poet Laureate of Australia. And... Uh, that always kind of made me feel a bit ill because it just was this window into like how that might happen, you know? <laughs> like just somebody just decided. But um, I wonder, do you think we need a Poet Laureate? Does that seem like a role that would be useful here in Australia? I mean, I think more poetry is always a brilliant thing. Um, there are so many great poets in Australia that for someone to actually have their voice elevated and heard by the general population would be incredible. But at the same time, as you kind of intimate with that story, I feel like that poet laureate job is a particular job, you know, that, yes, it might be your responsibility to probe the national conscience a little bit, but, you know, is anyone going to be elected? What are the politics behind the, I suppose, election or appointment of such a person? 
you know, are you going to get someone who is, you know, radically right-wing or radically left-wing actually appointed to that position? And, and what responsibilities does that person hold? Is it just to represent themselves, their opinions and their work? Or is it to represent the consciousness of what, what really at times is quite a divided country? Um, and so, yeah, I think, I just think more poetry would be good. You know, have 10 poet laureates. <laughs> That's a good idea. Have like a poet laureate board. Exactly. <laughs> they all need to write a collaborative poem. It's really great to talk to you. We're already laughing about the idea of uh, Kim Beasley unilaterally appointing a poet laureate. Uh, I was having a lot of fun scrolling through your your Twitter feeds. I'm not a huge Twitter user, but every now and again, if I'm about to talk to someone, I'll, I'll scroll back through in a bit of a stalkery way. So apologies for that. But um, humour seems to be really, really important to you. And I wonder if um, I've been having this kind of debate or conversation with a couple of other poets recently about whether poets could stand to be a little less serious and maybe allow themselves to have a bit more fun. Yeah, I mean, humour is so important. There's not enough laughter in the world. At the same time, you know, the world seems to be crumbling around us. And for me, I think humour is just important for survival. And a lot of my work, I think, is quite serious and quite dark and does, you know, deal with issues that are serious. And so, you know, I guess I see social media and interactions with people as a, a place to kind of lighten that up and have a little bit of fun. Um, but even in my work, you know, um, with, with my memoir, you know, people say, oh, it's devastating. I say, yeah, it is. But there's also really funny bits, you know, that kind of balance of going, you know, even something like racism can lead to hilarious situations that are completely tragic in a dark, comedic way. And I think it's important to, you know, that's one of the beautiful things about people, about humans, is that sense of humour and sense of fun and ability to joke around. I want to ask about, because you don't only write poetry, you also write fiction and, and short fiction, but I'm wondering about poetry specifically um, and whether there are poets that you look to as guideposts in terms of what's possible or who've inspired you to stretch yourself or perhaps given you direction in other ways. I, I know for myself I've felt like there have been particular moments that I can point to where pre-seeing that person perform or reading their work, a certain amount was possible to me and then after, there was after that. Yeah, I think in, in very different ways. Even, you know, at, you know, I did study creative writing at university and always gravitated towards poetry, but it was when I found, you know, the Jamaican dub poets, for example, who were writing this reggae poetry. It was like, oh, okay, there's this poetry that can be performed and is a completely different thing to what I've been taught. Seeing a Canadian poet, Shane Coyson, at Melbourne Writers Festival years ago, it's probably almost a decade ago now, just the way that he had these long, rambling spoken word poems that were these kind of narratives about his life um, delivered in this really particular way, I think made me think a lot more about the way that I tell stories. Seeing, we used to have something in Melbourne called Overload Poetry Festival, and um, I think it became defunct about eight years ago, but it was essentially a, a festival that revolved around regular events in Melbourne. So, you know, they'd hold the festival for a week and you'd have 
every venue that held that held poetry readings in in Melbourne would hold an event uh, throughout the week. And I was scheduled to read with Ali Kobi Ekerman, uh, the Indigenous poet, and it was the first time I'd ever heard of her work. And I remember she was on just before me and it was like I almost couldn't go on to read afterwards. You know, it was that kind of, you know, I've heard this poet, she's absolutely incredible, you know, how have I not heard of this person? Then it was like, okay, Maxine, you're up. Not not even having that chance to digest. Um, and I do always feel a bit like that when I hear or read Ali's work is just, ah, oh, just the rawness of it and the, the, you know, the way she's able to tell such, you know, almost snippets of memoir about her life through poetry um, in such an immediate way. Um, and yeah, just the part, I think a lot of the, the poets I came up with, you know, from the spoken word scene into, um, into really page poetry. So Omar Musa, Luca Lesson, Emily Zoe Baker, I think my peers have had a lot of influence and constantly going to poetry readings in my kind of early to mid twenties, just feeding off what other people were doing in reading and writing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that experience is so important, not only for the people that show you what is good, but also because if you're in an open mic, you can hear some pretty dodgy stuff. And yeah. that's, <laughs> that can be really great too. It's very informative. Yeah, absolutely. Like here's some dodgy stuff. And also I feel like for me, the way that I write and edit was informed by you know, initially I was only writing spoken word. And when I say writing, I think in the early days I wasn't even writing things down. So I'd kind of almost form a poem, you know, throughout the day or as I was walking somewhere or something and commit it to memory and then I'd perform it at the microphone. And it's like having an editor, a live editor. You know, if your poem is not up to scratch, you can see the audience just completely losing attention, disinterested, unengaged. And so I think I started to think a lot quite early about who is this work for and that editing, you know, you only do that once before you take that poem and go, okay, I either need to fix this and work out what's wrong with it or maybe that wasn't the right audience or, you know, maybe I need to try something different. And so I think that, um, yeah, that was really formative was actually being able to say, see people's faces as you deliver the work to them and bombing lots of times as well. <laughs> I mean, I think at times I was that dodgy person. <laughs> oh, me too. I mean, that's so important. You need to have that experience of just walking away to watery applause and just going, yeah. oh. <laughs> I can live with that now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to ask about absences in terms of, I'm really aware having these conversations, you know, I'm going to be talking to to six poets for Poetry Month and I'm really aware that I'm just one person with a particular experience that I'm bringing to those conversations. What do you wish more people would talk about in terms of poetry in this country we call Australia? I think there are these touch points in the conversations we have. You know, we talk about um, page versus spoken word. That's a thing that we touch on. We talk about this idea of a, a resurgence in poetry lately, that's another idea that we talk about and whether it's true or not. There's always the sort of question of, you know, how did how did this particular person come to poetry and what does poetry mean in their life? But, like, what, are we, what do we not 
talk about that that you'd like to hear spoken about more? Oh, wow. Great question. I mean, one thing I wish I suppose was talked about more is why are people so reluctant to engage with poetry, um, you know, in a broader sense and kind of understanding that as poets and what do we do about that? You know, do we do nothing? Will people just find poetry in their lives wherever they find it? Um, you know, how is that working class kid who has a job on a building site going to stumble across a poem? And how is that, you know, rich kid who's in a corporate law firm going to be dragged kicking and screaming to poetry? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think to so many people, poetry is something that you're forced to study at school. And it's something that's seen as inaccessible and archaic and all of those kind of tropes. But there are so many spectacular contemporary poets from all different backgrounds in Australia and, and, and globally. Um, and how do we re-engage that? Um, I feel like we're in a short form world. You know, the world is moving so fast. No one has any time. You know, people talk about not find, being able to find time to read or unwind, but poetry is such a, a quick and immediately accessible thing. And how do we adapt that to our lives? And I think an increasingly important thing, you know, it's mapping the way the world is unfolding and can hit people on another, you know, especially with COVID, that 24 hour news cycle that we're all tapped into. And I think when you can reach people in that poetry or literature space, it's a completely different engagement um, with the world and what's going on. Yeah, how are we going to get the, the was it the lawyer accounted? How are we going to get that person? <laughs> how are we going to get that lawyer to read poetry? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just talking to a friend this morning about his job at a marketing agency and just he's kind of like, these people are all so normal and I'm so weird. <laughs> like yeah. that doesn't make you wrong. Yeah. Um, digging into that a little further, are there questions that you wish people would ask you about your own work that constantly get missed in the discussion? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've started writing recently and actually the, the poem I wrote for National Marjorie Poetry Month is a poem for kids, you know, for primary school kids. Um, and I feel like, you know, I write kids picture books as well. And those picture books are actually poems. And, you know, it's a picture book narrative, but they're written in poetry. And if you took the pictures out of them, that should actually be a poem. And I feel like it's this strange world in which, you know, a lot of poetry consumed by kids, at least primary school age kids, is it has to have pictures with it. So you can almost disguise it as a book. And I guess I feel like I don't often get asked about writing poetry for kids. You know, I get asked about, you know, what picture books and illustrating them and how do you put the idea together and things like that. But there's often not, I suppose, a recognition that this is actually just a poem that's been illustrated and put into picture book format. And I often think that when I read picture books myself, um, you know, back in the day for my kids and when I'm browsing, I'm like, this is a really good poem, you know, but yet if you took the pictures out of this and stuck it on an A4 page and, and sent it round, there would be this kind of reluctance. We, we almost see poetry as something that it's something that high school kids study. And yes, yeah, so I guess that's something that I have missed 
talking about I think might be a missed opportunity is like how do we and I guess feeds into that question of how do we create poets is like like as with anything you start young Mm, mm. Um, and you know that idea of you know I'm sure there are so many poets in Australia who, who could write a book of poems for kids that kids would absolutely love I feel like I could keep talking to you for ages. I'm having a great time. But, uh, but I, I did have a last question that is a bit of a swerve from what we've been talking about. But I, I want to ask about um, power and gate, gatekeeping. Last year in particular, we saw an escalation in challenges to power structures in many places, and one of which was the Australian literary landscape. We were having conversations, I feel like, last year that probably had been bubbling away, you know, in beer gardens and people's houses for many years. But then, event, you know, there was this moment where people suddenly all started to say at once, like, yeah, that we've had enough of this. So do you think that those conversations, first of all, would you agree with that sort of description of how things have unfolded? And do you think that there's been change that's been meaningful out of that? Or are we merely seeing another round of, people saying yes and then doing the same thing they've been doing the whole time? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think I've, I, in the, and as, a, as a, an emerging poet, I always found it really, really difficult to have my work published, even as someone who had studied creative writing at university, you know, as a black woman of migrant background, it was sending work off and just getting constant rejections. Um, which is why I actually started out in the spoken word. It was like, where on earth am I going to let people hear my work? And it was kind of, no one can kick me off the microphone. (laughs) It's an open mic. And so that's how I started delivering my work. And I often think about that. Would things be different if I was starting out now? I'm not entirely convinced that they would be. I think... um, in the last 10 years, the Australian land, literary landscape and especially the poetry landscape has diversified. So, you know, I would go to a lot of readings and be the only person of colour on the mic and sometimes the only woman on the mic. Um, and, yeah, I think I think I definitely I've seen things diversify around me, but not necessarily the gatekeepers. So by that, I mean publishers, I mean editors, I mean, you know, the people that, you know, might be making funding decisions. Um, I think what we see as the changing face of Australian literature is often the changing shelf. Um, and, of course, that, that can be taken away at any moment. I don't think it will be because I also think there's an increased understanding that diversifying is actually commercially smart at the moment. Um, but I don't want it just to be that. I don't want it just to be, oh, well, we might get called out in any way. If we publish more diverse voices, we're going to get more diverse sales. It, you know, I think real diversification is of, of everything, of critics, of publishers, of you know, people in media organisations that choose what work to promote or what gets airtime. And I'm hopeful that that's changing, but it's certainly not changing as rapidly as the face of writers is. Yeah, that does seem to be the case. It feels like there's this, there's a, a wave and there are people right at the crest and then there's sort of the publishers and the journal editors are, are maybe, yeah, maybe still playing a bit of catch up. 
It's interesting. Thank you for for going with me into all that. Would you like to read a poem to take us out? I will. I feel like this is a bit of a depressing poem, actually, (laughs) to take you out on. But it's from my book, Carrying the World, and I guess it's really about um, the way poets are often revered in death in a way that they weren't revered in life. It's called Dead Poet Society. And when you go, people you never knew will send, oh, captain, my captains, into eternal cyber circulation. And when you go, they will all proclaim that when you said, carpe diem, seize the day, you change the world or their soul or an entire generation. And when you go, when you go, they'll crank another print run, rerun your movies until dawn. And in the end, they'll always say, well, she never eclipsed that first role or book or exhibition or album. Or else in the end, they'll say, such a shame. It just doesn't make the least shred of sense. His last book or role or exhibition or album, it really was his best. And when I go, I will go to the darkness between the crimson carpets here where art does not live on art alone. And I, its feeder, have faltered 